All right. Well, we made it to the end of Ephesians. As you saw, we read the last two verses. And we've been at this since August. So some of you may have thought, well, it'll never end. And others of you may have thought, it couldn't end fast enough. Well, we are there nonetheless. And I appreciate the encouragement as we went along that you have given to me. It was wonderful to see God speak to all of us through the book of Ephesians. And I think our church has been shaped and molded by the book. I see unity and joy and laughter and helping one another and love for Jesus. And this, this is a good thing. And I, I see it growing in our midst. And um, I'm very, very encouraged with this. It's very encouraging. Now, beginning in January, we are going to be going through the Gospel of Mark. And I know that we will all grow in our appreciation uh, and our love of Jesus by looking at this great book. Uh, so we'll be starting that uh, right about the middle of January. So look forward to doing that with you th- for the beginning part of the year. We'll probably be there almost well through uh, the summer. So be prepared for a longer book, but it'll be a good book. Uh, today's message, I'm attempting to close off the book of Ephesians and at the same time take a look at a Christmas story. So I'm praying that you will track with me if you look at the passages that Brett read for us this morning. And today's message is going to very simply be summarized with the phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now I remember Christmas Eve as a child. I was the most magical day of the year. No, I didn't believe in Santa Claus or reindeer. I just loved our family Christmas traditions and our celebration. Mom would always have taco dip and plenty of Christmas cookies and cheese and crackers that night. And Dad would have the fireplace roaring and the tree going. And we'd have Mannheim steamroller playing in the background. And these festivities, however, wouldn't usually start until about 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night. Why? Because we needed to go in my mind, to that blasted Christmas Eve service that always started at 6 o'clock, right? And it was incredibly long. I had to wait all through the day, and then we had to go to church, and we had to wait through the service, and then we'd come home, and all I wanted was those those Christmas cookies and to open our gifts. And my mom would never let us touch those Christmas cookies until Christmas Eve. She was always worried that there would not be enough, and and, and yet there were hundreds left over, after the holiday season. And we'd be eating them well into February. So I'm not sure what she was too worried about. But I wanted to, I wanted to yeah, dive into those and dive into the presents. And we'd get home and we'd have to sit and wait more as mom would put out those cookies and the taco plate and set the mood with the music. And we would act, this is actually back in the day when we had the old tube TV. So we'd turn on the TV, run upstairs, get changed, come down and finally warm up. Anyone remember a TV having to warm up? Yep, I'm that old. So the TV would warm up and then We'd come downstairs and watch the wonderful world of Disney's Christmas Carol, whatever that was. We spent all day waiting, and then we would wait through the Christmas Eve service, and then we would get home and we'd still have to wait until finally mom would call us into the kitchen and we would dive into those cookies and we'd rush into the family room and spend time as a family. Waiting is a part of life. The Advent season leading up to Christmas Day is a time of expectant waiting. Advent is a derivative of the term for arrival. And during the month of December, we wait in expectation for the day we celebrate Jesus' arrival as a baby 2,000 years ago. And at the same time, we are waiting for the arrival of Jesus at his second coming. So we look back and we look forward. We look forward with hope and anticipation and curiosity as to what Jesus is going to do in the future. 
Now, when God first entered time and space as a baby, Jesus, the Jews were in a sort of exile. Their land was occupied. The people were disillusioned. The national identity was shaky. They were looking forward to a future hope. The Jews were looking for a Messiah. They were waiting in expectant hope. They thought that the advent or the arrival of the Messiah would be triumphant. That he would arrive as a great king, a conquering hero, an unmistakable heir to the throne of David. They looked forward to his coronation, to his destroying foreign kings who occupied their land, to assuming his throne of David and bringing peace and justice to the land. This was their hope. And God had done it before, way back in Exodus. So why not have him do it again? The Jews were waiting for salvation from their exile. Today, as we wait for Jesus' return, his second coming, all humanity is in exile. Deep down inside, we know that there's something inherently wrong. We chase after false gods and we look to people and politicians and heroes to lead us to peace and prosperity. We long for evil to be eradicated. We desire love and we desire peace. We want a Messiah to deliver us from poverty and sickness and death. And we wait for the advent of a great king, a conquering hero, a generous Santa, whatever you call it. We look forward to the destruction of terrorists, the demise of warlords who commit genocide, the eradication of diseases and sicknesses, the ending of poverty and hunger. But, it, but as we see over and over again, no human can accomplish this. No one has enough money to end poverty. We cannot get food to all the places that need it the most. Sickness and diseases continue to mutate and continue to spread. Terrorists still pursue evil. In the end, no human can be a Messiah. So we wait for salvation from our exile as well. But God, and we've seen in Ephesians that God has had a plan. He put it into play before the world was ever founded. God's plan has never changed. And we saw from the book of Ephesians that God had predestined the coming of the Messiah, the purpose of the Messiah, and the plan of this Messiah long before he even created the world. Remember that? But God, being a God of mystery, left the details a little bit fuzzy through the centuries. The wonderful part is that what was a mystery for so long, and even at the time when, uh, from when we read the Magi story just recently, even then it wasn't clear, but it's been made clear to us. The mystery is that Jesus is the Messiah. The mystery is that Jesus' coming was not just for the Jews, but for all nations. The Messiah came to liberate everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, from sin, from Satan, and from death. He did not do this through conquering earthly kingdoms or through eradicating sickness and disease or destroying terror and poverty. He showed us that he could have done that if he had wanted to, but he had something else up his sleeve. He came to prove that God loves us and that God wants to indwell us. So much so that he came to earth, was born as a baby, he lived and died and was buried, and he rose again from the dead so he could save all of us and bring us all into his family. He proved that he was God. Now both Matthew and Paul are teaching us these same truths in the books, in the, in the book, the letter, and the gospel that they wrote. Paul, in our Ephesians passage, establishes that peace and love and unity come from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah who brings the light to the nations through love and peace 
and unity. And Matthew establishes that Jesus, the Messiah, was God. As we looked in Matthew chapter 1, if you want to turn back there again, Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So both Paul and Matthew have these ideas in mind as they write their letters. Number one, that God in Jesus was the Messiah. Number two, that Jesus fulfilled the mysterious Old Testament prophecies. And number three, that Jesus offers not only to the Jews, but to all humanity, salvation out of exile and darkness. And both Paul and Matthew talk about these things in their Gospels. And the reason that I bring these two together is if you look at Ephesians, turn back to Ephesians in chapter 5. If you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. Ephesians 5, 14, there was this little poem that said, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Do you remember that? Well, that was a, 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 a poem that was probably taken from Isaiah chapter 60, we looked at. And so where these two things converge, for both Ephesians and Matthew, is in Isaiah chapter 60. So that's why we're going to tie it together today. And you're going to see that there's some cool things that God brings out. Now, as we read through Matthew chapter 2 this morning, we saw the story of the Magi, right? Now, why would Matthew record a story like this? He's the only one that records this story. Luke and and Mark and John, they don't record the story of the Magi coming to see Jesus. What was his point in bringing it up? He did not have to include the story. After all, none of the other writers put in their account. I believe it's to point us to the truth that if you believe, then Christ is in you, the hope of glory. So let's take a look. Matthew chapter 2, 1 to 12. First, I want to point out the fact that some missed him. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people to, and he inquired of them where Christ was born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judah, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So, now I first want to point out that there were people that were waiting for the Messiah. So much so that the religious leaders knew where the Messiah was supposed to be born. They knew where, the old, where in the Old Testament to look in order to find the prophecy. Verse 6 is a quote from Micah 5.2. So the Jews were waiting for the Messiah who was to come out of the town of Bethlehem. What seems a bit curious to me is this. Why wouldn't the religious leaders want to go and see Jesus in Bethlehem too? If they were so excited and so ready for the coming of the Messiah, why didn't they flock in droves to go see who he was? It would only seem logical. Now, perhaps their idea of a Messiah did not include a baby. 
Or perhaps they had only time for an adult. After all, a baby can't really change anything, can he? Or perhaps they were skeptical. How could Magi, the non-Jews from the East, be the first to see this sign regarding the long-awaited Jewish promise? Maybe they were kind of upset. Or perhaps they were afraid of what the Messiah coming would mean for them and for their people. My thought is that their idea of the Messiah, how he would come, what he would look like, how he would act, was actually so determined in their minds that they missed the truth. They were so blinded by their own concept of what was going, they thought was going to happen, that when it did happen in a different way, they missed it entirely. Remember what we said a while back in the book of Ephesians. We cannot make God into our own image. We cannot conform him to our standards. We cannot make him do our will or follow the path that we think he should follow. God is unpredictable. He's mysterious. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. He cannot be contained. We do not get to dictate how God, who God is and how he's going to act. He is fully capable of doing that himself. If we do think we have God figured out, then the chances are we're actually going to miss him. The chief priests and the scribes missed their long-awaited Messiah. In our day and age, in our culture, we're so quick to explain things away. We have all the answers, scientifically and statistically speaking, to everything. And if we don't know the answer, well then, we Google it, right? And you got Siri and Alexa who know all. They can show you the videos or the statistics or the temperature of anything, anywhere in the world in a moment's notice. We can explain almost anything away to that to a previous generation was a mystery. And like the religious leaders, we think we have it all figured out. Many of us miss the Messiah because he's not what we thought he would look like. Now remember a few weeks ago when we looked at Ephesians chapter 5 verse 14. We looked at that just a second ago. We looked at how that verse could have been taken from Isaiah chapter 60 verses 1 and 2. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 60. And I want to show you this. This is way back in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 60. It might take you a minute to get there. But listen to this from the prophet. He says this. Arise and shine for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold darkness shall cover the earth. And thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you. And his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. So some sought him. Some missed him and some sought him. The Magi and Herod were ones that were looking for him. The ones who had no preconceived notions of how it was all going to go down. The ones who knew less about God were actually curious and worried enough to take this child seriously. Unfortunately, Herod was only concerned with his own selfish rule and power. And he had all the children under the age of two eventually killed in and around Bethlehem. So that his reign would not be compromised. He considered the baby Jesus to be a a legitimate threat to his throne. Not so the chief priests. They just ignored him. But the Magi were not afraid. They were in awe and wonder. And they pursued finding him. They were concerned with finding the truth. With following the way. And with seeing the life. Notice that the Gentiles were the ones who sought Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 60, it says, in verse 3, it says, The nations will come to your light, 
The nations come to his light. So the Gentiles are coming to his light. The Magi representing the Gentiles somehow knew that the light of the Messiah would come and it would be for them. The light is called the glory of the Lord. So the nations, the Magi, come to the light. And here's where I think this is really interesting. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6. It says, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian Ifra, and all those from Sheba shall come, and they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Interesting. There's a mention of multitude of camels. Could it be that the traditions of the Magi arriving on camels are accurate? And they will bring what, according to Isaiah? They'll bring gold and frankincense and good news. Praises to God. This was written hundreds of years prior. How could they have known? It's no coincidence that Matthew records the light of the Messiah arising and the nations coming to the Messiah on camels bringing gold, frankincense, and good news. That's not a coincidence. I believe Matthew has included the story of the Magi to demonstrate that Jesus is the promised Messiah for all nations. He's saying, look, it happened just as Isaiah predicted it would. And the chief priests and the scribes, they missed it. They missed the light of the Messiah. Matthew wants his readers to seek out the Messiah. He is indeed the promised one. So it's Christ and in you. Our second point is in you. Back to Matthew chapter 2. We're bouncing around a little bit today, but Matthew chapter 2, verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with, his, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. So a star. Have you ever wondered about that star? I know I have. How could a star guide someone to as specific a place as a house? Some say it was the aligning of three planets, Jupiter, Saturn, and Pisces, which happened around 7 BC, which created an exceedingly bright light in the sky. And and it was believed that the the wise men followed this, this big light in the sky. Some theories theorize that it might have been a comet that had his tail as big as a kite, right? We even sing a song about that. Um, the comet did, it, there was a comet that did last for weeks that, that was about that time, and it, it kind of streaked across the sky, and it, it pointed down to a specific spot. And I think there's validity to this. It's very possible that there was a combination of these things that the Magi saw. But even as a kid, I would read this story, and I would wonder, how did it rise and go before them and come to rest Upon the place where the child lay. If it was a comet, how did they know which specific house Jesus was in? This had to be something different. This had to be something more than a comet that passed through the sky. So here's my theory. It's only a theory, but I think it has some merit. This is why we read a few verses up there in Matthew chapter 1, 22 and 23. Remember, Jesus' name would be Emmanuel. Which means what? It means God with us. If you look back in, in, Ephesians, in, uh, in Exodus, I'm not going to read it, but in Exodus chapter 40, there's this description of when uh, the Israelites build the tabernacle 
and they, they finish off the tabernacle and then they, they, they pray and God's presence comes and fills the tabernacle. And then his presence goes before them as they travel across the desert. In the day, it's a cloud and at night, it is a pillar of fire. So God's manifestation or his presence is revealed in a fire that goes before the children of Israel. Now when Moses, he uses the same description when, to, to describe when God rested on top of Mount Sinai. There was great cloud and fire. God's presence was, was represented by fire on top of the mountain. And when Moses met God in the burning bush, how was, how was God's presence in the burning bush? It was in the form of a fire, right? In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, when Solomon dedicates the temple, God's presence comes down in fire and in great light or in glory. So God's presence fills the temple, fills the tabernacle, it's in the bush. And then in Acts chapter 2, it's a curious thing. Acts chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. When the disciples are in the upper room and they're waiting for the the presence, the coming of the Holy Spirit who's going to fill them. What does it say? How does it describe the, the coming of the Holy Spirit? In tongues of fire upon their heads, right? So it seems to me that many times in Scripture, when God allowed his physical presence to be seen, it was in the form of fire or flame. Jewish rabbis in the time between the Old Testament and New Testament coined the term the Shekinah glory to describe this phenomenon of God's presence as a flame. The term comes from the Hebrew word Shekan, which literally means to reside permanently or to stay. So Shekinah means to reside or to stay. Could it be that the star that the Magi were following was the Shekinah glory of God, leading them to the place where his presence dwelt? In Jesus. Could it be that they were following God's presence, his Shekinah glory, to where Jesus was? So there's a star, and then there's a prophecy. Back to our passage in Isaiah. The whole context of Isaiah 60 is prophecy that God will deliver his people from exile by coming in light, fire and light. As we saw in Ephesians, Jesus is the light that has come. In the midst of doom and darkness, God gives hope. The Lord will arise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. So Jesus is the light that arose upon all nations. Jesus has come and made a way for us to be united to God and to God the Father. It is summed up with Colossians 1.27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. When Christ is in you, we have glory in our midst. Think of the apostles and acts with tongues resting upon them, the Shekinah glory coming down upon them. He dwells within us, we saw in Ephesians. We are the dwelling place of God, his living temple. Our light has come. This is why we celebrate his coming at Christmas. Now, why did we look at the story of the Magi in conjunction with the conclusion of Ephesians? It's a good question. Yes, partly because it's Christmas time. But also because I wanted you to see that what both Paul and, and, uh, and Matthew are writing about is evidence in both places. Both references to Jesus as the light converge in Isaiah chapter 60. And it's not a coincidence. It's all one message. And we've been talking about this for months now. The message is this. The Messiah, Jesus, was not plan B. It was God's eternal purpose from beginning of time. 
The mysterious promise of a Messiah was never meant to be just for the Jews. He was sent for all of us, for all people, for all the Gentiles. A light for the nations. God loves all people and chooses to dwell in anyone who believes in him. And that's where we'll end Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So Paul wraps up Ephesians with two words that he used at the beginning. Grace and peace. As we conclude our study of Ephesians, these two words should be prominent in our thoughts and minds. They are the results of Emmanuel, God with us. For they come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Grace to you, in chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wraps up the book in the same way. Grace and peace come from the light of Jesus' presence dwelling in our hearts. Grace and peace are necessary for every relationship that we have. Jesus is the fountain of grace and peace. Let's remember all that we have because of the arrival of Jesus as a baby. There's peace. Paul extends peace to the brothers and sisters in Ephesus. Peace, you have nothing to fear. Peace, you don't have to have it all figured out. Mystery is okay. Peace, you are under the care of a sovereign God. Peace, you are loved by God the Father. Peace, you are adopted. Peace, you are forgiven. Peace, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Peace, you are chosen. Peace, you are called. Peace, you are empowered. Peace, you are spiritually rich. Peace, you are saved. Peace, you are free. Peace, you are united with God and with one another through Jesus. Peace, you are the dwelling place of God. Peace, you have boldness to go before the Father. Peace, you have access to the Father at any time. Peace, you are brought near to Him. Peace, you are seated in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. And then Paul extends grace to all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. As we look through Ephesians, grace, we are saved by it. Grace, it is not of our own doing. Grace, it is not up to us. Grace for walking in unity. Grace for walking in harmony. Grace for walking in truth. Grace for walking in kindness. Grace for walking in love. Grace for walking as light. Grace for walking in wisdom. Grace for submitting to our husbands. Grace for loving our wives. Grace for obeying our parents. Grace for raising our children. Grace for standing in strength. Grace for putting on the armor of God. Grace for fighting against the devil. Grace for overcoming temptation. Grace for standing firm in the faith. Grace for maintaining our unity. Grace for praying for one another. Grace for testifying to the world that Jesus is the way. Grace for shining light of Jesus in the dark world. Grace for bearing the Shekinah glory for the world to see. Grace for loving as Jesus loved. Grace and peace have been through the whole book. And then one difference that Paul makes at the very end here is he adds this word love. 
The difference between the beginning and ending of Ephesians is that Paul throws in this word love. Grace to all who love with love incorruptible. What does incorruptible mean and why does he throw that there? By definition, corruptible means genuine or immortal or sincere or perpetual. It's simply this. The way of Jesus, the grace and peace of Jesus is a way of life. It's not just something that we we believe, but it's a way that we live. It's a way of life. It's genuine. It's not full of pretense. It's not fake. It's not phony. Our love for him is not secretly for our own benefit. We genuinely love Jesus. It's a way of life. It's immortal. It doesn't end. We are committed to Jesus through thick and thin, through sickness and in health, through disaster and blessing, through sorrow and joy. If loving Jesus is our way of life, then we don't stop loving him. Sincerity. Our love for Jesus is honest and sincere. Our love does not hide ulterior motives. Our love is pure. It's perpetual. Our love for Jesus keeps on going. How could we stop loving Jesus? He doesn't stop loving us. He gave it all for us. How fickle for us to find any excuse that would keep us from loving Jesus. He's the focal point of history. He's the fountain of love. He's the dispenser of grace. He's the hope of eternity. He's the source of our unity. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the origin of wisdom. He's the creator of light. He's the presence of God Almighty. And he's Emmanuel, God with us. What did the Magi do when they saw the light? They followed it to Jesus and bowed down and they worshiped him and they loved him. What do we do when we see the light of Jesus? We follow him, we bow down, and we worship him. It's a way of life. We love him with love incorruptible. Now, I think there's application for this, uh, for all of us in this, in this room. Whether we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, come to save us from our sins, or if we have not yet believed that. For those here who have, may not have put your faith in Jesus, maybe it seems too much like a fairy tale. Or maybe it seems impossible to believe that God could come as a human. Maybe it's too much like stepping into the unknown. Maybe our thought of a savior for mankind looks different than the baby Jesus. Whatever it may be, I urge you to give Jesus a try. Believe in him. You have actually nothing to lose and everything to gain. If you don't want to miss the arrival of Jesus, like so many did, please see me afterwards. I'd love to share a cup of coffee with you and talk it through with you. Now, for those of us who know Jesus and are walking in him, the message is for us as well. Jesus is coming again. We started this all out by talking about Advent or arrival. It's a time of year when we, can, when we wait expectantly for the arrival of our King. Our King and our God, Jesus the Messiah, came once. And he promised that he would come again. And this is our hope. And if we've learned anything from the book of Ephesians... And from what we've looked at today, it's that God's ways are beyond our ways. God's story, the way the Messiah would come, the mysterious thing to the chief priests and scribes, men who did nothing more than study the scripture all their life, they missed it. Jesus' first arrival was not what they expected. Tragically, a lot missed it. 
I personally anticipate that his second coming is going to be nothing like we expect. It's too full of mystery. Let's not miss him. Let's watch for him. And in watching for him, let's invite others to come and see him with us. So we just finished celebrating the first advent, and now we wait and expect and hope for the second advent of our great Savior Jesus. As we do so, let's remember that God is with us. We have life in Christ. Remember, Ephesians all about life in Christ. And Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray.